Can you just raise a hand, little hand, if you haven't been here for the last... Well, you weren't here last week, shall we say, so you haven't heard the bad news. Okay. Um, I'll have to bring you a bit of bad news first then. Okay, and a bit of an introduction. Uh, just remember that the Bible is not arranged in chronological order. Um, some of you may think it is, it is not. Um, and if you are New Testament-only readers, you're missing out an awful lot. I just mentioned that in passing. Uh, we're going to look at some of the Old Testament later. Now, the, the letter to the Romans, obviously the fifth book of the New Testament, but actually sixth book, if you like, or sixth letter written. Incident, interestingly, it was written before any of the Gospels were written. So the church in Rome had nothing of the New Testament. All they had was the Old Testament, what the Jews would call the Jewish Bible. We call it the Old Testament. And so they had no written record of what Jesus had done, who Jesus was. All they had was word of mouth. And I was sort of looking at this thinking, well, who was actually in Rome? There's about 200, we reckon, about five house churches or home groups. So I make that 40 in each on average. Excuse me, I'm a mathematician. You, you, you'll get used to it. Um, I, I still count the stairs as I go up, actually. It's very sad. Um, <laughs> some of them would have been, a lot of them would have been Greeks, because before the Roman Empire came along, uh, it was the Greek Empire, and the lingua franca, or the commonly spoken language, was Greek. And a lot of Greeks would have migrated from Greece to other parts of the empire. And when the Roman Empire came in, they would have stayed there. So there would have been lots of Greeks actually living in Rome. The New Testament, as you may know, was actually written in Greek, not in Latin, not the Roman language. So you would have had in the church in Rome, you'd have had some Greeks and some non-Greeks, and, and there probably would have been tensions between them for whatever reasons, historical reasons. But also, some of them would have been Jews. Uh, there were Jews living all over the place, not just in Israel, as we know it, but they were in various places for various reasons. But every year, the males at least had to go up to Jerusalem for three feasts. And it's quite possible, or quite likely, that some of them had actually been to Jerusalem for the uh, feast of Passover, which is the first one of the year, celebrating the time when Jesus rescued his people from Egypt. And, of course, it's the time when Jesus died. And some of them would have uh, witnessed that, or word would have gone round in Jerusalem, because there were thousands and thousands of people there. And the word would have gone around, and they may have gone back, and some of them have gone back home to Rome and all kinds of other places. So you would have had Jews who hadn't heard of Jesus. You have Jews who've perhaps met Jesus face to face. They've witnessed his crucifixion and resurrection. Not his resurrection, didn't witness that, but they knew he was being resurrected. And so it was a complete mixture. And of course, also, you had non-Jews, who were called Gentiles, and they would have no prior knowledge of God, really. They didn't have the Old Testament, didn't have the Bible, didn't have anything. And so you've got this sort of mishmash, if you like, a bit like us, a mixture of people, different backgrounds, different uh, histories, and so on. And Paul's letter is addressed primarily, at the beginning, to the Jews and the Gentiles. 
Okay, just remember, Gentiles are simply not Jews. And uh, let me think. Yes, one of the things that they, they would have heard if they'd been in Jerusalem at the Passover feast was when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the disciples who were gathered in Solomon's portico, which was in the temple grounds. And Peter, I don't know whether you remember, Peter stood up and gave a very, a very strong talk, very different from the Peter we'd known beforehand. Um, and he said, one of the things he said was, Jesus is the stone that you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. I was just thinking about the songs we sang this morning. They're amazing. You know, just we assume that and we know it. But perhaps there's one or two of you here who don't know it for yourself. So, I just want to refer to a couple of people who were around in Jerusalem at that time. And they, they were walking home, I presume, on the day of Jesus' resurrection. Now, they didn't know quite what had gone on. They said, oh, some women had gone to the tomb. They said, the tomb's empty. And uh, someone says they've taken tomb. Other people say they've seen Jesus. We don't know what's going on. And uh, they were talking about this, and they were going on their way home to a place called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. So it's a nice, leisurely stroll. And as they were discussing what had been going on, uh, someone else appeared. And that person, actually, we know, was Jesus. And he just sort of sidled up to them and said, hello, chaps. <laughs> now, I always thought it was a couple of men. But in my research for this talk, I've discovered it's generally agreed amongst a few people. Uh, <laughs> hang on. I'll say that again. Yes. That actually, we know one of them was Cleopas. Now, who, have you ever researched Cleopas? Do you know who Cleopas was? Anyone? Go on, just let me know. Oh, thank you. It's worth doing then. Uh, Cleopas was Joseph's brother. Joseph, Mary's husband, as it became. Yes, so Mary was his sister-in-law. He was married to someone called Mary. <laughs> it's very confusing, the Mary's a very popular name. It's actually Miriam in Hebrew, uh, but it's a very popular name because you also have Mary Magdalene. Uh, so there's three Marys, and when it talks in the New Testament about Mary, or in the Gospels, you think, I'm not quite sure which one this is. But they were like sisters-in-law. They were sisters-in-law in law or something, you know, like the husbands or brothers, but they, they were married to the two brothers. But sisters-in-law like that would often be referred to as sisters. And so when you read in the uh, Gospel, uh, a sister, you think, uh, hang on. Anyway, it seems like probably Mary, who was at the cross consoling Mary was her sister or sister-in-law and she is the wife of Cleopas. So I think these were the two people who were going on home to Emmaus. Not necessarily, but it fits the story very well. Okay, now Jesus said, so, so what are you talking about? Um, uh, they said, well, are you the only person who's just been in Jerusalem and hasn't heard what's gone on? And uh, he said, well, go on. 
So they said, well, look, this man, Jesus, we, th- we, we were his disciples, we believed in him, we thought he'd come to save us. And then they killed him. The Pharisees, they had him killed by the, by the Romans. And now we're hearing that he's been raised from the dead, um, but, or at least his body's disappeared, we don't know what's going on. And then, I suspect you know the rest of the story, many of you, Jesus then spoke and he took them through the Bible showing how the whole of the Old Testament spoke about him as leading up to him. It's a very good book called The Scarlet Thread which shows how Jesus is anticipated through the whole of the Old Testament. Every book has something about him, not necessarily his blood or his sacrifice or different aspects of him and we'll go through those in a little while. Just to say though, before I go, I'll just give a a few things that come out of chapter 3. First of all, Paul says, is there any advantage in being a Jew? Because we've already said that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the only way through is by faith. So he says, yes, actually there is an advantage. The advantage is that the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. Thank you to Anthony, by the way. We had a torrid time just before the meeting trying to sort all the overheads out. That very good. Uh, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. Now, if you were a Jewish and Jewish family, you bring up your children, you tell them all the stories from the past, and every Saturday you would go to synagogue and you would hear the uh, word being uh, spoken being read, particularly what's called the Torah. That's the first five books of the Bible uh, considered to have been written by Moses. Uh, So he said, yes, that's an advantage because you've got the history. You know know about God, whereas the Gentiles, they don't. So you've definitely got an advantage there. But you still have to know God by faith. And then he goes on, he says, actually, everyone's equal. You're all equal. Rich, poor... Jews, Gentiles, Greeks, non-Greeks, we're all in the same boat, guilty of sin. Sorry, it's bad news at the moment, but we're going on. No, then he says, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Now see, some of the Jews thought, well, we, we observe the law, which Moses gave us, so that gives us the right to what? I don't know whether they're quite sure what right they had, whether they talked about going to heaven. They didn't much talk about that. They just felt it was their right. They were the holy people. We're, you know, we're a level above everybody else. And the answer is no, not the law is there just to teach you. It's better translated as an instruction book, if you like. It's how to live. Salvation is through faith, or righteousness comes through faith. Now, righteousness is being, uh, not like God, but being pure, if you like, righteous, you can difficultly find it without using the word righteous. Um, God is righteous. Uh, so where have we got to? Righteousness is through faith. Let's just make, I'll do a little detour here, because um, I talked about the uh, road to Emmaus trip, seven hours, not seven hours, seven miles. Uh, how long will that take? A few hours, probably the rate they walked at, if you're having a chat. And during that time, Jesus 
went through. And what he, he did, I haven't got onto Romans 3 much, just a little bit. So we're going to do a little digression here and show how Jesus does appear in some form or other in every book of the Old Testament, which will take us about two minutes. Okay? <laughs> if you're taking notes, use shorthand. All right? So now you'll recognize some of these and some you won't. And the reason I'm doing it is because we do need to see that Jesus is multifaceted. The gospel is multifaceted. We heard a lot of it this morning in our singing and that reading from Romans 8, but there's a lot more to it. Uh, anyway, here we go. Genesis is the seed of the woman. Jesus is the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's the high priest. In Numbers, he's the cloud by day and the fire by night, and he's the atonement. In Deuteronomy, he's a prophet like Moses. In Joshua, commander of the Lord's army. Now, some of these are facts. Some of them are prophetic. Some are things that actually happened where Jesus appeared before he was Jesus. Um, Some of them are just what we call types and shadows, where people's lives were indicating what was Jesus was going to be like. Uh, so I'll keep going. Commander of the Lord's army, he actually turned up, and, and uh, Joshua said, who are you? He said, I'm the commander of the Lord's army. In Judges, he's the judge and lawgiver. In Ruth, he's the kinsman redeemer. Uh, a lot of you like, like Ruth. Uh, in Samuel, he's the prophet of the Lord. In Kings, he's the reigning king. In Chronicles, he's the glorious temple. In Revelation, right at the end, it says the Lord, the, the Lamb and the Lord are the light. They are the temple. Ezra, he's our faithful scribe. Nehemiah, he's the rebuilder of everything broken. In Esther, he's our advocate. In Job, our ever-living redeemer. There's a famous verse there, I know that my redeemer lives. Yeah, you know the Messiah, some of you, do you? Yes. Psalms, he's a shepherd. Incidentally, I'm picking out one thing from each book. In some of the books, there's loads of them. Uh, Proverbs, wisdom. In in Ecclesiastes, he's the meaning of life. In Song of Songs, he's the loving bridegroom. In Isaiah, he's the prince of peace and the justifier. In Jeremiah, he's the righteous branch. In Lamentations, he's the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he's the son of man. In Daniel, the fourth man in the fiery furnace. In Hosea, he's the faithful husband. In Joel, he's the outpourer of the Holy Spirit. In Amos, he's the burden bearer. In Obadiah, he's the mighty saviour. In Jonah, he's the great evangelist. A bit greater than Jonah was, actually. Uh, In Micah, the everlasting ruler born in Bethlehem. In Nahum, the avenger of God's elect. In Habakkuk, the watchman, in Zephaniah, restorer of the remnant, in Haggai, the cleansing fountain, in Zechariah, the one pierced for us, and Malachi, the son of righteousness with healing on in his wings. Wow. I give a thanks to Gary Hamrick for that, by the way. <laughs> Not, um, it's on YouTube. I don't know whether you can see the... Uh, word cloud there, but that's all those words chucked in to a bit of a mess. Uh, if you want, take a minute or two, if you want to take a photo of it or something, feel, feel free. I saw someone taking a photo of the uh, other stuff or a video, I don't know. You're welcome to do that. But you may find that some of these uh, 
descriptions of Jesus you've never come across before. He's all these things. And we often look to him to be, say, the comforter, the one which actually comfort means giving strength, <laughs> but, you know, the one who comes alongside us, the helper and so on. But he's a mighty warrior as well, you'll find, when the end comes, he's leading the armies of God in judgment. So he's, he's everything. When people say Jesus is everything to me, <laughs> they're right, but I'm not sure they know what they're saying sometimes. So that's, that's that. So when Jesus went through the whole of the scriptures, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. That's in Luke 24, 27, which was flashed up just now. When it says beginning with Moses, that means the five books written by Moses, which is the law. So it's the same thing as the law and the prophets. And by the law and the prophets, or Moses and the prophets, they basically mean the whole of the Old Testament. Okay, so let's move on. Jesus said something interesting in, um, as recorded in Matthew chapter 5, 17. He said, now don't think that I've come to abolish the law. You know, I've, we've said that the law will not save you. The law doesn't make you righteous. Faith is what makes you righteous. But he says, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. I am the fulfilment of the law and prophets, and that's what I've just read. So, if you want to look through that list again, you see, yeah, Jesus is that person. Jesus is a shepherd. I like that one. Do you like Jesus as the commander of the Lord's army? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> uh, depends which side you're on. Actually, Joseph said, uh, Joshua said, which side are you on? He said, neither. I'm on the Lord's side. Uh, I like that one. Now, when it come to the heart of Romans 3, really, the key verses for me, uh, which are verses 21 to 25. You've got your Bible there, you can turn to it, or both of you. Yeah, and uh, if you haven't, it's going to come up on the screen, okay? So Romans verse, uh, chapter 3, verses 21 to 25. And I want to spend a bit of time on this, um, So I was just waiting for it to come out. I'll start reading anyway. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. Right? So you're not saved by law, but they do support, uh, they testify to the righteousness of God. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. I think you heard this by Rich last week. Uh, but I thought I'd just dig a bit deeper. I don't know about you, when I'm reading the Bible, especially some of the Old Testament, I, like, I might read it, but I think, oh, I don't quite understand that bit, I'll move on. And it can be the same with the New Testament, just words, certain words. I don't know what that word means, but I'll move on. So we're not going to move on today. We're going to stick with some words which are in bold up there. And you may have noticed on the previous thing, they were in much bigger letters than the others. 
So the first one is righteousness. What is righteousness? There's no point in just skipping the verse because you're not quite sure. It's good to know what righteousness is. Righteousness is quite simple. It's through faith in Jesus Christ and it's being considered right in God's eyes. Okay, so I'm righteous. I believe in Jesus. I believe in God. I am righteous. You might not like me saying that, but I am. Anyone else here righteous? Oh, good. Thank you. The next one is justified. It says justified freely by his grace. And I just mentioned here, I might mention again at the end, everything that we're talking about here is by the grace of God. We don't deserve any of it. We, look, we heard about that from Rich last week. We don't deserve any of it. But by grace, he has revealed Jesus to us. And by grace, he has accepted faith for years, right through eternity. Eternity, right back to the beginning of time. Faith was the key. We are justified freely by his grace. Now, justification, the noun, that is the act of making someone righteous. So that's through faith. So these words are very closely linked Right, justification is the act of making someone righteous. Righteousness is being considered right in God's eyes. Now, redemption, uh, or Jesus is our redeemer. Redemption, I first thought of the pawnbroker. We, um, I don't go to a pawnbroker, but you know, if you want to buy back what you've... You take something in and it gives you some money for it, not a lot. And then when you want it back, when you've got enough money, you go back and you redeem it, you buy it back. Until you buy it back, it's not yours. That's what Jesus did when uh, he was on the cross. He redeemed us. He bought us back. And as he stood on the cross... Oh, sorry, something else. Um, in that, those days, if someone owed a debt, say they owed the tax collector a debt there'd be a record of it, and then someone else might come along and say, it's all right, I'll pay it for you. You can't afford it. You know, you'll, you'll be carted off to somewhere. Uh, I don't want that. You break up the family, so I'm going to pay it for you. And they would go to the tax collector or whoever it's owed to, and they would pay the money, and then they would get a receipt which said, paid in full. And apparently, sometimes they would stick that on the doorframe of the house where the person lived, paid in full. And when Jesus was on the cross, I wonder if you can remember what he said. I think there are three things recorded that he said. One is, he said to the, uh, one of the uh, other people being crucified with him, said, today you will be with me in paradise. I didn't want to concentrate on that one. He also said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We're not concentrating on that one. He said, does anyone know what he said just before he died? It's finished. it's finished. Now the word that he used, standing there, it's finished. It means paid in full. Wow. Same word. Paid in full. So at that point, the whole debt was paid for all mankind, for all wow. time. That is billions of people. Thank you, Kate. Excellent. <laughs> The fourth word is atonement. You see, if you know what these words mean, when you read that passage again, you think, wow, I remember. 
Well, you might have to look it up again. Christ is presented as a sacrifice of atonement. Now, here's the advantage of being a Jew. You would know what the Day of Atonement was. It's known, we probably know it more as Yom Kippur, uh, possibly because our children, uh, some children have a holiday that day, those two days, the Jews do, on Yom Kippur. A very holy day, the most holy day in the Jewish calendar. And it's all to do with forgiveness, making what we call atonement for the sins of the people. I won't go through the details of it, but on that day, a pure goat was sacrificed to take away the sins of the world. Now, of the whole people, I mean, of the Israelites. Difficult to understand. I mean, there's lots of things about God I don't understand. Uh, but it seems that by sacrificing, by his blood, the goat would shed blood. And by that, the people would be atoned for a year. And then they come back a year later. And Jesus, when he took on, when he died on the cross, he took on the sin of the whole world and became the sacrifice, the atonement, for everyone, for all time. Both before he came and after he came. How that works, I don't know. Because before Jesus came, no one believed in Jesus. They believed in God. But somehow, uh, it's a mystery. And I'm going to leave it there. The over one word to sort of cover all this is Jesus is our saviour. Uh, so. But that word's not used here, I don't think. So what are we saved from, though? A lot of people, you know, we save people. Are you saved? Saved from what? Ourselves. <coughs> Not from ourselves. No. We're saved from God's judgment. If we go back to what uh, Rich said, they didn't listen last week, Rich. Um, we're, sa- we're saved. He's not listening either. Um, we're saved from God's judgment. We are righteous in his eyes, so there's no judgment. If we weren't righteous in his eyes, then we would suffer not only his judgment, it says his wrath and judgment, and that is something to be feared, I tell you. We, don't, we haven't seen it. We are, at the moment, uh, some people are persecuted and so on. That's not God's wrath. God's wrath is judging sin. And if we don't repent of our sin and turn to him by faith, then we cannot expect to escape the judgment. Now, what happens at the judgment? Uh, different people have different ideas. But let's say it's separation from God. I'm going to leave that there because I can't cover everything. Uh, but the question is, do you want to suffer God's wrath? Or do you want to be welcomed as a redeemed saint? Oh, good. Some yeses there. I'm not sure which one, but I gave you two choices and you said yes. But there you go. Um, it's like, would you like coffee or tea? Yes, please. <laughs> Do you want to suffer wrath? No. Or be welcomed as a redeemed saint? <laughs> By the way, in the New Testament, it talks about saints. We are saints. The saints aren't somewhere up there playing harps. We are saints. You don't become a saint by doing something rather in the Catholic Church either. You don't pray to saints. We are saints. Holy ones. That's what it means. Okay, that's chapter 3. Chapter 4, I I was going to say at the beginning, I'll give chapter 4 about five minutes, because actually, in one sense, not to criticise Paul, there's not a lot in it. He suddenly, 
jumps and goes back to Abraham. Uh, so what he's saying was, was, was Abraham justified through circumcision when he became a Jew? Is that what did it? He's going back to the thing. Is he the law again? Is he going back to that? Now the circumcision was actually a sign of the covenant that God made with him. It wasn't the covenant himself, even though God told him that all his descendants, male descendants, should be circumcised when they're eight days old. It's a sign of the covenant. And even now, Jews will be circumcised even though they haven't the faintest idea why. Um, but uh, in chapter 4, now it refers to uh, a chapter in Genesis, so I'll read it from Genesis. Chapter 16, verses 2 to 6. It says, Abraham said to Sovereign Lord, What can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. We don't know who that was. Obviously some distant relative. He'd lost his, he'd lost his father, his brother, probably his other brother had died as well. And so the only relatives he had were his only children. And maybe the law said that it would go to someone else. So he said, you give me no children. Oh, that's why it wasn't going to his children. I haven't got any. So he's got no relatives, really, except some distant relative called Eliezer of Damascus. And so, what I'll have to do, a servant in my household will have to be my heir. And then the Lord said to him, this man will not be your heir, Eliezer, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside you can't do this here, where we, are, where we live. He said, look up at the sky and count the stars. Well, we can look up and count the stars sometimes. I counted two the other night. <laughs> um, I think if you go out into a really dark, dark place like it would have been there, you can hardly see anything but stars. It's just phenomenal. Uh, you can do it in this country if you go up to Northumberland or whatever. And what he said is, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. This is Abraham, aged about um, 75, I think. And his wife was just a little bit younger. And so, and he's thinking, well, we're a bit old for this. Uh, but he believed God. And he credited it to him as righteousness. He believed God, and so God credited, credited it to him as righteousness. And that was over 400 years before the law came. So faith, righteousness by faith, is not dependent on the law. It can't be, because it came long, long before the law. So if you think that by obeying the Ten Commandments, you're going to get to heaven, think again. They might, they're quite good as a guide to life, but... You, it won't get you to heaven. It does make people aware of sin, Paul says. It makes you aware. When you read the law, you actually realise how bad you've been or how bad you are. And it also says that the offspring of Abraham are not just what we call the Jews, not just the natural line, but also the spiritual line. All those who believe by faith 
are actually Abraham's offspring. So we are Abraham's offspring, if we believe. So are any Jews who believe, any Greeks who believe, any non-Greeks? Anyone who believes we are Abraham's offspring. And so I think that's pretty good. In Romans 4, 23 to 25, it says, the words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Now, of course, God didn't need to provide a way out for us. He could have just let us all come under judgment. I thought about that. I thought then he wouldn't have anyone. Uh, but by his grace, and I haven't used the word grace much, if at all, but it's by his grace. That means we're getting what we don't deserve. He's done it out of his mercy, out of his kindness. It's out of his grace that we get what we don't deserve. That's forgiveness and as we read in John's Gospel, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's not just living forever, it's living with God forever. Wow. A few yeses there. And that is grace. I'm just going to give a couple of words of my testimony, how I came to the Lord. Uh, who was it? Someone uh, said something about the over 60s or whatever it was. <laughs> Thank you, Michelle. Um, I, was, I became a Christian 63 years ago, actually. Um, <laughs> I'm still standing. Uh, I was 13. There you go. Bit of maths there for you. I was 13 and I was at a summer camp. I was at a school with a very strong Christian union. I think it was 500 boys in the school. But every summer, we had a camp run by the Christian Union and there'd be about 50 of us boys there. We'd go to the West Country somewhere, somewhere where you could get to the beach easily and so on. But every evening we would come together under marquee accompanied by hundreds of daddy long legs and we would hear a talk, we would sing hymns from a hymn book called Golden Bells. Who said that? Oh, yeah, thank you. Golden Bells. Uh, <coughs> There's one hymn which comes to mind. I haven't sung this since I was there, but I can remember it. Uh, it's, uh, I'm feeding on the living bread. I'm living at the fountain, drinking at the fountainhead. And whoso drinketh, Jesus said, shall never, never thirst again. What, never thirst again? No, never thirst again. What, never thirst again? No, never thirst again. We used to love singing it because the uh, older people would sing the question and we'd all shout out the answer. No, never thirst again. Now, I don't know what happened one night, but obviously in the talk, something was said and I was convicted. Now, I was brought up in a Christian, Christian home, uh, went to church, never heard the gospel. Uh, I don't know what we did here, actually. There's stories about Jesus, I suppose, but that was about it. I don't know what the sermons were ever about. Uh, but I suddenly, I knew that I had to do something. I wasn't a perfect child, you see. <laughs> I lied. <laughs> I lied. I even stole once. Uh, I deceived my mother. Actually, I phoned her up later. I said, I'm sorry, Mum, I need to apologise to you for when I was a boy. 
I mean, I, I had to. I just had to apologise. And uh, I told her what I'd done. And she said, I don't remember. But anyway, I forgive you. Amen. A word I had never heard in our house before. <laughs> it was just amazing. So anyway, back to the uh, camp. At the end of the meeting, I rushed out of the marquee, back to our tent, so I'd be the first one there, fell flat on my face, repented, asked Jesus to forgive me, and I uh, gave my life to him. So, I'm going to throw out the challenge. If there is anyone here who's not done that, rush down to the tent and throw <laughs> yourself on the floor. If anyone's not, not done that, and given your life to Jesus and accepted his righteousness, his forgiveness. It's a bit more than just saying he's my saviour because you come a disciple. Yes. It's more than that. I'm giving you just the beginning. We'll get the rest later in Romans. Uh, but that's just the beginning. If you want to, I'm not going to ask you to come down the front like Billy Graham would, but just if you need to, just do it. Thank you.